Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hi, this is Sean Ailing, regular host of Vox Conversations. Today's episode is a taping of a live event before a virtual audience Vox hosted in honor of Juneteenth, the June 19th holiday celebrating the emancipation of the enslaved in the United States. My colleague Fabiola Sinius was host of the event, and without further ado, here she is. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio Licinius, and I write for Vox about race. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I think a lot about whether America can ever actually be an anti-racist country. There was the murder of a half dozen Asian women in a shooting rampage earlier this year. And recently, attention is being drawn to the practice of race norming through the NFL. The idea that Black NFL players have lower cognitive functioning than their white peers. It feels like every day now I learn about a new atrocity committed by American institutions and citizens against people of color. In 2020, with the pandemic freshly upon us and following the police killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, many Americans took to the streets in protests for months. They said enough is enough and that Black Lives Matter. White people in particular pledged to be better and do better. Many started on anti-racism journeys to better understand how racism is embedded in this country's institutions, laws, and policies. They set out to look inward and figure out how they enable racism and what they can do to actively fight it. Now, more than a year since the start of the reckoning, I want to know, how can we even begin to evaluate the progress we've made? Is anti-racism in the U.S. too lofty or maybe too out of reach? Can America ever be the country it says it is? So here to help me work through all of this is Ibram X. Kendi. He's a professor in the humanities at Boston University and the founding director of the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. Time named him one of the most influential people in the world in 2020. Dr. Kendi is the historian and author who recently popularized anti-racism through his 2019 book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He's the thinker who so many people turned to for answers last year when they wanted to challenge themselves and the country. Dr. Kendi, thank you for being here today. Oh, Fabiola, thank you so much for having me. So the first question I have for you is a broad one, and it's intentionally broad. I'm curious to see where you go with it. But as I said in my intro, we're a year out from the start of the national reckoning on race. So What's your assessment of where we are, especially as it relates to anti-racism? So I think my assessment is largely historical. And what I mean by that is 
what is happening now a year later, a year after people all over the country were demonstrating against police violence and racism, a year after upwards of three-fourths of Americans, according to one poll, were stating that racism not only exists, but it was a big problem. A year after that, we're experiencing something similar to what abolitionists experienced 200 or so years ago. We're, we're experiencing what those who were trying to reconstruct the post-Civil War South were, were experiencing, what civil rights activists uh, experienced 60 and 70 years ago. And, and what I mean by that is really the America's racial history is a story of racist power instituting racist policies and practices that lead to racial inequities and injustices, and then the victims of those injustices and inequities and their allies organizing and resisting those policies and practices only to be then told by racist power that racism isn't the problem, that those people resisting racism are the real problems, are the people, as being told now, that are dividing this country, that are creating sort of problems. And so we're in a moment now in which the people speaking out against racism are being cast as the problem, uh, as opposed to racism itself. And how does that make you feel when you think about this broader vision of anti-racism? Does it make you feel like we're actually on a path to anti-racism when Black people and the people resisting racism are the ones who are basically being blamed for the country's problems? So I think there are two ways to think about it. So I, I think that for 30 years, you know, abolitionists in Boston uh, and other sort of states were considered the problem, were considered America's problem. But in many ways, they were continuously and steadily, whether Black or white, uh, whether enslaved or free, pushing up against this sort of Goliath of slavery. And the more they pushed, the more the destruction or sort of the counter sort of uh, revolution or the backlash, as some people call it, came. So for me, the more we resist, the more the forces of racism resist back. Uh, and so I'm actually not surprised that the resistance against anti-racism is so fierce because there is a governing majority of Americans now, and there may have never been this such a sort of a governing majority that recognize racism, you know, as a big problem. Now, are we moving to actually eliminate it is a completely different question. <laughs> right. So so that's my question. Like, it feels like this pendulum swing. The second we make progress, we get pushed back. More progress again, we get pushed back. Like, where do we get to a moment where we stop doing these kinds of dramatic swings away from, from the progress that we're trying to seek? I, I think it will likely be that there will be individuals who have platforms who are screaming to the American people that the problem are those Black people as opposed to racism. The question, though, is whether those people are going to be in positions of power. And so now you just have so many, for instance, state legislators, uh, legislatures that are controlled by those people. You have people who consider themselves to be Democrats 
who also believe this lie that the problem are those people who are trying to create voting rights for all as opposed to those who are trying to snatch it away. And so because those people, whether in Washington or in state capitals across this country are in power, they're able to institute policies or refuse to institute policies and then justify them, you know, based on these these ideas. That's what's dangerous right now. So we have to drive those people from power. And if we do, then I think they'll just be singing in the wind and it won't matter as much. Mm. So then what do you think has been the most meaningful change in the last year? Has it been people, new people moving into power? Well, I mean, I, I do think that when we look at our institutions, whether cultural institutions, whether it's political institutions, whether to a certain extent, even economic institutions, you have had people who are committed to a just and equitable world and nation. Now, obviously, there's a lot of debate within that group, but but you do have people who are committed, who have ascended local, state, and national offices. And I think that certainly they are a reflection of what has helped, what has changed. But then, as I stated before, the majority of Americans still say that racism is a problem. And I just don't want us to forget that five years ago, that wasn't the case, <laughs> right? So, so we're in a place now, it wasn't as high as it was this time last year. But the question is, so what are we, the majority of Americans, going to do about it now? Absolutely. The thing that's scariest for me um, in the conversations that have emerged in the past year is this idea that the more power that people of color get, the more equality that there is. This means that white people are going to live in a world that's worse for them. It's this, again, this idea of the zero-sum game, that progress for people of color means that white people are going to lose. I feel like that is one of the most dangerous things that I've seen emerge in the past year or just get more attention. What are your thoughts on that? It is. And for those white Americans and even people of color who who believe that idea, I would point them to two recent books that were published. You know, one is a book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, which directly challenges this so-called zero-sum myth that is people of color gain, white people lose. And indeed, studies have shown historically and even currently that as we institute anti-racist policies, we all benefit. The vast majority of Americans benefit. As we've instituted racist policies or have we, as we have not protected those Black people who were being preyed upon by lending packages before the Great Recession, which then allowed those predatory loans to pervade the entire system and thereby take down white <laughs> homeowners because we did not care about those lives who were Black who were being lost at the end of April last year from COVID-19, which then allowed people to be like, oh, it's not a big deal if we open states back up, which then led to more and more white people dying, as well as people of color. But then also another book you know, I would recommend is, is called uh, Dying of Whiteness by Jonathan Metzl. And, and both of these books really show how white racism is not just harmful to people of color, it's harmful to white people. <laughs> that anti-racism is not just beneficial for people of color, it's beneficial to the majority of white Americans. 
And, and I mean, we can go all the way back to whether we're talking about the slaveholding era, where white slaveholders not just sapped the wealth of enslaved people of color, but the vast majority of, of people who lived in the South by the time of Civil War were non-slaveholding, largely poor whites, <laughs> whose poverty was directly related to the riches of racist white slaveholders. And we can go all the way up to today to people like Donald Trump. Hmm. So I want to talk about the word reckoning itself. Um, as a reporter, it, I really struggle with it because when I think of reckoning, I'm like, this is a moment where we're looking in the mirror. There's a big judgment and evaluation where we're like, who are we? What do we want to be? So I think that term like got used so quickly um, and I use it all the time in my writing. But then when I actually think about it, I'm like, was there actually a reckoning in the last year? And some examples that give me pause are just like a week ago, we saw Amy Cooper file a lawsuit against her previous employer, basically saying they fired her. It was wrong to do that. She still believes that what she did when she called the cops on Christian Cooper was not racially motivated, as she says. We have our vice president, Kamala Harris, being asked whether America is a racist country. And she's saying it's not a racist country in response to what Tim Scott said. By the time the Chauvin trial took place, 229 black people had died at the hands of the police. And I believe the New York Times had a stat where every single day of the trial, on average, three black people were killed at the hands of the police. So how can we call what happened a reckoning when we just have these these scary facts? And I do also hear what you're saying about just poll numbers, right? More people believing that racism is an issue. But what do you think about this idea that we experience and maybe are still experiencing a reckoning? So I, I think that even though the term woke is now been made into a pejorative sort of term, even by people on, especially by people, not just in the right, but the center and even sometimes the left, you know, I, I think it may be better to sort of frame it as a, a racial awakening. But just like you and I, when we woke up this morning, that doesn't mean we got out of bed and did something, right? So just because you are awake or you can potentially see racism or you can see, for instance, that what happened to George Floyd in that video is privately happening all over this country, just because you can see that now doesn't necessarily mean you're going to support the policies and practices and people who are fighting to eliminate <laughs> that racist violence, who, who are fighting to, to eliminate those racist policies. And so I think that's where we're at, in which people are awake but there does not seem to be a commanding majority of people who are willing to support the types of policies that would allow us to eliminate what people see. <laughs> so let's take a quick break. But when we're back, Ibram X. Kendi's work, How to Be an Anti-Racist, got a lot of attention and interest in the wake of the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. And more recently, his ideas have been lumped in with the really messy and often incoherent conversations around teaching critical race theory. But when Dr. Kendi uses terms like racist and anti-racist, what does he really mean? That's after the break. So I want to, I guess, take a step back because... What you've done that's so important is just get us to really think about definitions and get us to think about what 
racism actually means, what anti-racism actually means. So can you just walk us through some of those terms? Like, how do you define racist and racism? And then I want to apply that to policy. Sure. So I think it's first important for us to start with the terms racism and anti-racism, both of which we should understand as, as inherently structural, systemic, and institutional. And so when we're thinking about racism, we're thinking we should be defining it as essentially a collection of policies and practices that lead to racial inequity and injustice and are substantiated by ideas of racial hierarchy. And anti-racism is the very opposite, is you know a collection of, of policies and practices that lead to racial equity and justice and are substantiated by ideas of racial equality. In other words, there's equity between the groups, meaning people are both dying at low rates from COVID-19 and people don't think that that's a problem because they don't think that there's something wrong or right about any racial group. And then the question for the individual within this structure, system, or institution is what am I being in any given moment? Am I challenging or upholding the structure of racism? And when we as individuals are upholding the structure of racism through what we're doing or even not doing, we're being racist. When we are challenging that structure of racism, we're being anti-racist. And you also promote the idea that it's not this fixed thing. So I can't look at Donald Trump and just be like, I mean, can I? Can I look at Donald Trump and just be like, this guy is racist? <laughs> That's a hard one. But <laughs> no, and seriously, I, I would say that, yes, based on my research, people uh, historically and currently, there are people who express both racist and anti-racist ideas depending on the issue, they'll support racist or anti-racist policies. So you're talking about an individual who holds both racist and anti-racist ideas. So how do you essentialize that person as racist or anti-racist? You're talking about a person who, when it comes to healthcare, they support Medicare for all and eliminating disparities in, in, in insurance rates. But when it comes to police violence, they support increasing funding <laughs> for the police. And so how do you essentialize that person as fixed as a racist or anti-racist? But what you can say is when they're saying Black people are lazy, they're being uh, racist. When they're supporting policies that roll back or stop climate change, which is disproportionately harming the global South, they're being anti-racist. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like this understanding of, of racism and anti-racist also is, yeah, forcing us to not think of the term racist as a pejorative. So like the first piece that I ever wrote about Donald Trump back in like early 2017, the headline that I wanted to throw on it, the headline that actually was thrown on it was repeat after me, Donald Trump is racist, but it got labeled as an opinion piece. Like it wasn't this thing of like, he's factually racist. It had to be an opinion piece because it was like, whoa, 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 we can't go throwing around this word that is like meant to insult. So what is your read on that, that people kind of think of this word racist as something that's meant to injure and insult someone um, and speak to the core of their character? So it's ironic because the many people in journalism and outside of journalism who believes that do not realize that they agree with white nationalists, that that's a white nationalist talking point. Uh, Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right, who led 
the alt-right movement who really helped carry along with Donald Trump, the white nationalist movement into the mainstream, once said, racist isn't a descriptive term. It's a pejorative term. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. And so for me, for you to have put that headline is no different for you to have put a headline for a story saying Donald Trump is the president. <laughs> like, what is the definition of racist? What is the definition of president? If, if journalists, of all people, can't use words based on definitions, if we're essentially politicizing the words of journalists, then, then I mean, who can actually... <laughs> describe a person as being racist. To me, it's one of the most outlandish things in journalism right now, that somehow certain words can be used based on definitions and other words, you know, can't. If a journalist right now writes in a piece that it's hot in Boston, I don't see that. And it is any different than a journalist saying that that police officer who said Black people are, are dangerous animals was being racist. So I want to apply this to a more, a more personal situation. So my mom recently said something and I, I'm trying to figure out, like, <laughs> is this racist? So my mom's a home attendant, but she's currently not working because she's at home taking care of my dad, who's pretty sick. And my dad, he himself, he needs a home attendant to come to the house to take care of him. And so they've been running into an issue where the agency that they use can't find any home attendants because... People just, you know, aren't working. So my mom, we were on the phone and she was like, yeah, these people are, she didn't use the word lazy, but she was basically like, yeah, all these home attendants just are not working right now because, you know, the government's giving them these checks. So what's their incentive to get out and work? But she didn't say anything about like, oh, maybe home attendants like myself need better wages. So was my mom, you know, my black mom, who's an immigrant from Haiti, was she being racist in that moment? Was she supporting racist ideology? So it's hard to say because if in her mind, when she was thinking of home attendance, she was thinking of, of Black and Latinx women or people, then yes. Um, if in her mind she wasn't necessarily racializing home attendance, then, then it was probably more of a classist sort of idea. So it, it's sort of hard to tell. But again, I think most people, when they think of home attendance... <laughs> And the, the overwhelming majority of home attendants are people of are women, particularly of color. And then we're having this debate about people, largely people of color, who work in these types of positions, you know, as to why they are not heading back to work. It's either because there's something wrong with them, they're lazy, they prefer welfare from the government now over work, or the wages are low. <laughs> yeah. So was my mom supporting structural inequality in that moment if she was she was specifically thinking about black and brown women? Yes. Because then I'm like trying to yeah understand the connection then. And you say that these ideas give birth to the policies or is it the policies that kind of force people to have these kinds of ideas? So what happens is if you, for instance, are an elected official who is refusing to, let's say, support policies that provide basic income for people, which then allows people to be more flexible in the jobs that they choose, which allow people to go after more higher wage earning jobs, then you're going to turn around in this moment and say, 
the reason why people are, are not filling positions is because they're so lazy and is because they don't want to work. So you're going to justify your inaction against structural inequality by blaming the people. And then regular folks, my mother, your mother, <laughs> other people's mothers are going to consume those ideas and then believe that the problem are those women of color as opposed to those elected officials who are pushing that narrative. Hmm. So I'm trying to think about the word racist and whether this like redefinition, you know, just redefining it, does it kind of take power away from the word? Or is that what you are trying to do? I'm actually, it depends on what you mean by power. So if you mean by power, that like almost like a word is almost like a slap in the face to a person, then yes. Mm -hmm. If you mean power in the sense that, you know, it's a powerful word. Like, so for instance, if, if I go to the doctor today and that doctor says that I have, you know, a stomach ache, that's one thing. But if a doctor says to me, I have cancer, <laughs> that's a much more powerful thing to describe me. And so if you're saying that, then I'd say, no, I'm not taking any power away. To me, whenever someone is being racist and thereby not resisting structural racism because they think the people are the problem as opposed to racist power and policy, it's a major problem in our society. And they you know, are being problematic as opposed to the people they're problematizing. Mm. Something else I've been thinking a lot about is just the industry that's popped up around anti-racism and just thinking about the books. Like so many people brought anti-racism books last year, and that's the umbrella that I throw it under to the point that like bookstores couldn't keep up at all. And when that happened, I think a lot of us, a lot of people of color were like, dang, white people can just like sit and read a book while we're out here just struggling. Um, <laughs> and they can kind of pat themselves on the back and say like, oh, I went to a Kendi talk. I read Kendi's book. Like, look at me. I'm doing what's right. How do we measure that these clubs are working, that these books are working, that these discussions are are actually working? That's a hard question because, you know, as you know, it's, I mean, the effects of books is not something we can measure as precisely as like the effects of a policy, <laughs> you know, let's say whether a person just buys a book and doesn't read it, whether a person reads it but only reads parts of it, whether a person reads all of it but reads all of it with this without an open mind or reads it with an open mind and starts thinking differently about themselves, but then by the end of the summer, you have Donald Trump and others because they're sort of fragile. It's still new. And, and you have Donald Trump and others saying, no, 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 you shouldn't be thinking of yourself and you shouldn't be trying to change yourself. You know, those people are destroying this country with that defund the police stuff. And then you sort of don't know what to think or you flip back over. You know, what happened to people is it's hard to say. But what I will say is it's probably, you know, all of the above, right? Depending on, you know, different people. But what I do appreciate, and I can say this as an author, is to be in this writing community. You know, there are incredible journalists, you know, like yourself and people who are writing books on so many different aspects of racism. And these are extremely powerful books. So anyone who is serious, you know, about transforming themselves or understanding, you know, racism can pick up 
a book by Kiangi Yamata Taylor or, or Imani Perry or Eddie Glaude or Clint Smith's sort of recent book or Elizabeth Hinton and really begin to understand racism historically, you know, or currently. And I mean, that's our job as, as authors, I think, to provide the reading material for people who are serious. What they do after that, it's hard for us to really measure that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that it's mostly hope that drives you, right? Like the fact that we don't know that it's actually like working. Is it hope and this idea that we can eventually achieve this anti-racist society? Is that what keeps pushing you to write and, and talk about this? I think so at an individual and institutional level. At an individual level, I think through studying not only sort of structural racism, but the individuals operating within this structure, I was able to see people changing. And, and I think seeing people change, whether it's, you know, Derek Black, who's the son of Don Black, who created Stormfront, who has went from the sort of heir apparent to the white nationalist movement as someone right now who's striving to be anti-racist or or whether it's people like even W.B. Du Bois who transformed, you know, tremendously over the course of his life, particularly his his notions of sort of gender, class, you know, and culture. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even somebody who's been, hasn't had the change because they just came out of the sort of womb book, like Angela Davis. <laughs> you know, I, I think seeing people change or seeing people be strong in the midst of five decades of storms, you know, in the case of Davis, in terms of being in the public light, just gives me hope that people can change or people can be forthright. And then seeing what what we have done, what we have changed, what we have eliminated in history, the things we've done, especially as Black folks, the impossible we've achieved so many times, it gives me hope. Yeah. So I'm thinking about that kind of world. I, I think sometimes I try to picture that anti-racist utopia and just like what would be in it. So for you, what would an anti-racist America actually look like? And I, I to narrow that down, want you to apply it to like our coronavirus response. Like what would an anti-racist America have done instead of what we did last year if this were an anti-racist country? Wow. So I think first, if we were an anti-racist country, then people of color would not be disproportionately in positions of what were called essential workers. So I think, let's say if the day this virus became a pandemic was the day we became an anti-racist country, what we would have done, first and foremost, would have provided every single American, like other countries, wealthy countries did, with replacement salaries so that they could stay home. And that would have allowed even essential workers, particularly people of color, to stay home. Then we would have figured out, okay, who are the people that we really, truly do need to be essential? Not based on, in other words, they decided on their home, they could not stay home. <laughs> but we decided as a nation, we, we needed them in order to survive, you know, as people. And we would have ensured that the burden of those essential workers would not have fallen on people of color, particularly women of color. We would have also not only worn masks universally and ensured that that was happening, but we would have also figured out a way to ensure that the people who still had to work and who had children 
that we worked out childcare because obviously so many people, particularly women, but even some men, they struggled to even work from home when they could have because of childcare responsibilities. And again, that burden, you know, really fell on women of color. And then in addition to that, we would have built trauma one centers in every community in the country so that there would not have been trauma deserts. We would have universalized access to health care. In other words, immediately instituted Medicare for all. We would have had a radical sort of response to polluted neighborhoods. And we would have specifically recognized that people who live in polluted neighborhoods have higher levels of pre-existing conditions, which makes them extra vulnerable to coronavirus deaths. And we would have targeted our resources, particularly public health resources, to those people to prevent them from dying. You know, I can go on and on, but let me stop there. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to say, I think something that hurt the most at the beginning of the pandemic was just the lack of data and information. So you like leading a research center. It was like the fact that we did not know for a while just how deadly the coronavirus was for communities of color. That to me was like one of the first um, areas that spoke to how behind we were in terms of recognizing our failure to be anti-racist. I, I agree, Fabiola. And it, it really speaks to how behind my answer was, because that probably should have been the first thing <laughs> that I stated, yeah. that indeed we would have been collecting in a standardized fashion data on people who were taking tests, who were being infected, who were being hospitalized, who obviously were were dying, you know, not just in terms of their race and obviously class and and gender and sexual orientation and, and ability, but also their status as whether they're homeless or not, whether they're incarcerated, whether they're immigrant, their home country, you know, we would have had as much data as possible to understand where the hotspots are, not just in terms of the cities or the neighborhoods, but in terms of the groups of people. So we have a couple of minutes before I'm going to turn to questions from the audience. So what I want to ask you before I do that is just how are you doing? Like, how has 2020 changed your thinking on anti-racism and just also like how exhausted are you? So, I mean, it, it has been um, exhausting, um, but at the same time, I have just tried to remain focused on constructing and creating, you know, and producing and, and building. And it's hard to do that, you know, especially the sort of vitriol that's sort of coming my way and even watching people who I admire, like Nicole Hannah-Jones, being so viciously attacked and, and even her career threatened and, you know, critical race scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw being attacked, you know, race journalists who cover race being perceived as partisan or or subjective. I mean, it's hard to see that and to not want to spend all my time <laughs> attacking back and defending. But then I remember that why this is happening. You know, this is happening because this is what happens when we move forward and create more equity and justice. Great. So my final question for you before we move on to audience question is, like, does America already basically know how to be anti-racist, but we just can't get there because of hate, because of white supremacy? Yes. 
Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is, this is not rocket science. I mean, what I mean by this is not rocket science. If we were serious as a nation, and if we were not so constrained by so many powerful people who, as individuals, benefit from racist policies and practices or benefit from convincing white people that they are not the people who are causing their own constituents' pain, that the people who are causing their own constituents' pain are those Latinx immigrants and and Black criminals, you know, and Muslim terrorists. You know, if we were freed of those people, then I think it, it would be pretty straightforward. Racial inequity, what are the policies behind it? How do we eliminate those policies? What policies can we replace them with that can create equity and justice for all? Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, the audience had the chance to post questions for Ibram X. Kendi. Many wanted to ask him about the workplace. So in his own professional life, has Dr. Kendi ever actually seen anti-racism? We'll find out after the break. I picked two questions to start off from the audience. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We got so many and they're all really great. But Muriel wants to know, have you ever worked in an anti-racist environment and what made it anti-racist? So I would say no. And and I think what would make an you know environment anti-racist would be its policies and practices, you know, and people. And unfortunately, where, wherever I've been, there has been one of those in which I've had to encounter uh, it being racist. And relatedly, Sadra wants to know, as a black professional, I'm often solicited to join or head committees about diversity, equity and inclusion that are not always empowered to affect change. How do you decide which opportunities to take and try to reform them into action oriented groups and which to turn down when you know that if you turn them down, there will be no person of color in the room when decisions are made? I think inherent in the question was one of the ways out. So am I going to have the power in this scenario to enact sort of meaningful, lasting change? And how much resistance am I going to have to sort of overcome in order to institute that power on that, let's say, committee? I think those are two things that people should, should keep in consideration. But on the other hand, I don't think people of color should be treated as or see themselves as unpaid diversity workers. Mm. Louder for the people in the back. (laughs) Um, Ravi wants to know, how do we make sure that raising awareness of historically disadvantaged groups and being anti-racist does not sow more division and discourse in our already fractured body politic? And I think this question is interesting because this is what we see. A lot of people who oppose critical race theory saying, oh, this is, you know, dividing us even more. So, yeah, how is this like anti-racist movement not sowing more division? So to me, to be anti-racist is not to think of a racial hierarchy. It's not to be anti-white. It's actually to support policies that create equity for everyone. It's actually to eliminate any idea of racial sort of hierarchy. 
And so it's inherently unifying (laughs) to be anti-racist. But what happens is because so many white folks are being held accountable for the ways in which they're being racist, so many people who are trying to get those white people to no longer self-reflect and self-critique are saying to those people, you're being criticized because you're white as opposed to because you're being racist. And so then that person is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and and so then they're manipulated and then they don't want to continue because they think that who they are is being attacked as opposed to what they're doing or being. Right. Yeah. And I have a question that's related to that from Dan says, hello, Dr. Kenny. Thank you for writing how to be an anti-racist in your other projects. As a middle-aged white guy, I've used a number of your frameworks in order to aid the discussion among family and friends. I struggle to keep it simple and non-confrontational as some of my own shame and embarrassment of being so ignorant of privilege, bias, and allowing myself to be misled about U.S. history for so many years of my life seems to seep through when informing and challenging others to become more aware and active, to be more anti-racist. Inevitably, the chat becomes more emotional than perhaps helpful or instructional. Probably an odd question, I know, but do you have any guidance specifically for white men on how to best speak to other white men about racist systems and structures and how to be an ally? Sure. So I think in speaking to other white men, not to overly generalize, but we don't have that much time. There are certainly white men that you'll speak to who are open, right? Who just want to understand more who could potentially be open to the idea that they were being racist. And so with those white men, you just have to provide the information, the resources. But I think he's more so speaking about white men who are closed. And the best way to understand the way to relate to those white men or non-white men is to understand them as almost like having an addiction. And so when you're relating to a person who has an addiction you know that your job is to get them to see things for themselves. (laughs) Like they have to overcome their own denial that they're not addicted to a substance or addicted to being racist. And that involves a lot of trust building. That involves a lot of getting them to ask questions about themselves. Lecturing to that type of person who's addicted almost never sort of works. Mm. From Corey, which argument from your critics do you find most compelling and why? Compelling. (laughs) Um, Wow. Compelling. I'm trying to think of that word. I think the the argument I find most compelling (laughs) is those critics who say that my work states that white people are inherently racist. (laughs) And the reason why I find that compelling is because it's a demonstration that the critic has actually not read my work at all, (laughs) that I argue that no one is inherently racist. And so certainly white people are not inherently racist. But what's also compelling to me is how widely that idea has circulated among people who haven't read my work. And I think that also connects to other instances where you've said that you actually empathize with white people because you feel like they've been trained to be racist. Is that something you still believe? Yeah, I mean, either we're going to argue that white people are inherently racist, they're born racist, they're by nature racist, and there's no evidence that supports that. Or they were trained, educated, nurtured to be racist. 
And so what that means, if a human being is nurtured, trained, socialized, educated to be anything, to be anything that we don't necessarily like, and then they've been educated to be racist, and then because they're racist, they victimize people. What that means is if they're inherently anything, it's that they're inherently both being victimized and the victimizers. And so, for instance, those white working class men who right now believe that their economic struggles are the result of people of color taking their jobs or people of color getting government opportunities that they're not receiving and that Donald Trump is going to save them. I empathize with those folks because they've been hoodwinked. They've been had. They've been manipulated. Right. So Earl wants to know, why do you think it's been so hard for us to rally our finances and collectively build a community for ourselves like we saw in Tulsa in 1921? Do you have any suggestions to remedy this issue? Do you think that self-segregating like we saw in Tulsa or Rosewood or Harlem would harm or hurt black people in this country? Actually, I don't necessarily think it would help or harm. And what, I, what I'm sort of getting at is the issue was never whether you had majority Black neighborhoods or majority white sort of neighborhoods. The issue was the sort of resource disparity between those neighborhoods. And then what I would also say, I do think it would hurt if, you know, Black people decided that they were going to create all Black neighborhoods where nobody Black would be let in. <laughs> but I don't think it would necessarily hurt if like exists today, that you had Black institutions and, and, and Black communities that were governed by Black people and, and dominated by, by Black cultures. The problem is those spaces are typically exploited and drained of resources and then considered to be bad because they're Black, while white spaces are defended, are sort of privileged with resources and then considered good because they're white. Hmm. All right. I have one more question for you from the audience, and this is from Terry. So Juneteenth is coming up, and Terry wants to know, do you think that Juneteenth's more widespread celebration indicates that the country is moving toward a more inclusive future? And how do you feel about that? I, I mean, I think for some people, because I think particularly because of the 1619 Project, I think you have more and more Americans who are really beginning to reckon with American slavery or, you know, American enslavement. And Juneteenth, of course, becomes a place where we can all really reckon and remember. But at the same time, the sort of vicious attacks on the 1619 Project, but even in a greater sense, the vicious attacks on our memory of slavery, <laughs> on American history, on the founding of this country, on our collective desire to remember the Mayflower in 1620, but refuse to remember the critical importance of the white lion in 1619, you know, shows me that we're really, I mean, we're battling even over Juneteenth and over slavery. Right. 
All right. Well, to close out, I'm happy to announce Dr. Kendi's new podcast, Be Anti-Racist, where we listen to podcasts, listen to the first episode. So Dr. Kendi sits down with civil rights activist Rebecca Coakley. And it's I listen to the conversation and it's basically about how we can't have an anti-racist future and also have a future that's also anti-ableist. Uh, Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Fabiola. It's truly an honor. Ibram X. Kendi is the host of the newly released podcast, Be Anti-Racist, featuring weekly conversations with notable guests on how to build a just and equitable world. This conversation was a taping of a live event before a virtual audience organized by Vox's diversity, equity, and inclusion team. Thanks so much to them. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drazdowska. Paul Monsi mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And hey, if you have future ideas for guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at Vox conversations at vox.com and if you did like this episode share it with your friends rate and review and come back next week for a brand new episode